What up, everybody? Welcome to Oasis. I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> By the end of the year, this place is going to go nuts after I say something like that. That's awesome. Thank you for doing that. We are in this series called uh, From Damascus to the World. And actually, it's only a two-week series. So we're finishing it tonight. It's like a mini-series, but that's because we're just teaching to our vision a little bit. And if you missed it last week, I'd love to just recap because this whole series is focused on the life of Paul. But at one point, Paul was called Saul. And Saul was a super bad dude. Like, he, he was terrible. He persecuted Christians, killed Christians, jailed Christians. His whole life was dedicated to try to take down the church. But it's this guy, Saul, who has this radical encounter with Jesus where everything changes. We studied last week these two other people. Their names were Ananias and Barnabas. And both of those two went to Saul, sent by God, to serve him as the one. And when we talked about that one, it's the same kind of idea we're, we're playing with tonight, where it's this idea that every single one of us We are all to partner on mission with God. And we're about trying to build the kingdom, to tell people about Jesus, to train them up in in Jesus. And one of the best ways to do that is for each and every one of us to find one person. Maybe it's tonight, maybe it's this week, maybe it's at your workplace. I, I don't know where it is. But if you would find one person and love them and care for them and show them who Jesus is. That's this whole idea. We looked at it a little bit last week, but Paul went on from there. He was Saul at the time. And he went on to change the world. It said he is one of the greatest Christians, if not the greatest missionary of all time. And tonight we're going to look at that. But as we look at it, I want to address with you that Saul, his name is changed to Paul. And I get a lot of questions on this, so I'll just read to you where it it happens. It's in Acts 13, very quickly in verse 9. It says, then Saul, who was also called Paul. That's it. Like, nothing else exciting happens. Some people think it's like this Peter moment where Jesus comes and he changes his name. It's not quite like that. It was really common in this time to have dual names. And that's because people uh, interacted with a lot of different cultures, and in different cultures they had different names. So Saul, that was his, uh, uh, his Hebrew name. It showed his devout Jewish faith. So as he was a Pharisee and as he was persecuting the church, they called him Saul. But now he's Paul, and Paul is his Roman name. And it showed his citizenship in Rome. And so as he travels throughout Rome preaching the gospel, he goes by Paul. But the important thing for us to realize tonight is that Saul and Paul, same guy. And as we read the text in Acts 18, we're going to look at Paul. And we're going to look at how did he go about changing the world in Jesus' name. How did he do that? And I'm glad nobody has stood up and left because I was a little nervous. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm wearing sweatpants tonight. And it is the coziest outfit I've ever preached in, but it is not the craziest. One time for a youth thing, it was Halloween, and I preached in an Eeyore costume. (laughs) The middle schoolers loved it. It was super hot for me. I was very, very sweaty. But I'm wearing sweatpants for a reason. That's because I want to talk about Nike. Like, to me, Nike is the prominent athletic brand. You can argue with me. You can, you can like throw up your debate. You can come to me, talk to me in the foyer after. But Nike to me is it. Like I got the shoes on, the pants on, the sweatshirt on. I almost wore the hat, but I just got a haircut this week. So you know how that rolls. I couldn't cover it up with a hat, you know? And, And like Nike to me, they're everything. At the top, they've been there. They still are there. And actually, as I look towards the future, they're still going to be there. And one of the names that people throw out, they're like, Lululemon, like, oh, come on, they're on the come up. But like, nobody's paying two grand for a pair of leggings. And they're like, yeah, I'm on board with that for a long time. Lululemon's here one day, gone the next. I'm believing it. But Nike is here to stay. And I wrestle with this question because Nike is, I think, the top. But how did Nike become Nike? During COVID, I had a lot of free time on my hands. I don't know about you. And so I read books that I probably wouldn't read before. And one that I read was called Shoe Dog. And it was by Phil McKnight, who is the founder of Nike. And he goes through there and he tells the story of like, how did Nike become Nike? 
And in that, he tells stories about how there's great strategy they had. There was some gutsy leadership, but also some great leadership. There was a lot of bad calls that they made, but they were able to rebound from those calls. And as Nike persevered and struggled and became what we know today, we can look around and we can see all these other companies who wished they were Nike. Like, have you guys ever heard of And One? I just watched the documentary, yeah, there you go. I just watched the documentary the other week of, about And One on Netflix. And I didn't know this, but at one point, And One was competing with Nike. They were at the top. In the late 90s, early 2000s, they were up there. They were, they were living the dream. Their founders were, were having it all. But when they got to the top, poor decisions, bad leadership, and controversy plagued them. And now many of you, you probably recognize them more as the Walmart athletic brand than Nike. And there's nothing wrong with that, but and one's not Nike. They're worlds apart, but neither of them happened by accident. And as we look at Paul, I'm going to make the comparison that Paul is the Nike of missionary work. When it came to building the kingdom, Paul was the best. But it didn't happen on a whim. It wasn't some fluke or some accident. Paul, he's at the top, he'll remain at the top, and he's there for a reason. Not only was there a lot of strategy and intentionality involved, but he had people who came alongside him in that. We looked at some of them, we're going to look at some more of them tonight. So how did Paul become the greatest missionary of all time? What did he do that changed the whole world for the kingdom of God? When we open it up, we're going to look at Acts 18, but as you do that, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight in Acts 18. I pray that you would open up our hearts and your spirit would move and speak to us so we can walk away from here looking more like you. pray that in Jesus' name, amen. In Acts 18, I'm going to split it in half. The first chunk of text we're going to read, we're going to look at a couple who served Paul as their one. The second chunk of text is going to look at Paul's ministry model. So I'll read verse 1 through 4 first. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. A little bit of background, since we last saw Saul, Paul, is in Acts 9, he kind of went from there, and that launched his ministry. And he went from place to place. He was a super active guy, traveling all over. But every city he went to, he showed up and he'd preach. And when he would preach this gospel news, there was always opposition that came against him. In Acts 14, there's this crazy story where he preaches in this city and they stone him for his belief in Jesus. The same thing he did to Stephen, they do to him. And they think he's dead, so they drag him out into the the, the outside of the courtyard. They leave him out in the field and they're just going to let him be consumed by wild animals. That's what they were going to do with his body. It was just disrespectful. It was terrible. But Paul, he's miraculously healed. And most of you would probably flee that city. I would flee that city. Paul turns around, he walks right back into the place where they stoned him, and he keeps preaching. Keep going in Acts 18, Paul will find himself jailed, arrested, and thrown in prison because of the same gospel news. Everywhere he went, he preached, but there was opposition. In Acts 17, right before where we'll pick up the text tonight, he goes to three different cities, and as he preaches there, a mob is raised up, and they chase him out of the city. He goes to the next city, that same mob follows him there, and they chase him again. He shows up in Athens, and he preaches, and everywhere he goes, there was fruit, but there was also opposition. And because of that, Saul, he was beat down, and so he stumbles into Corinth. Acts 18 is where we find him in Corinth. There's a picture up there because Corinth is a huge deal. You can see the three cities he traveled to, but down there at the bottom, Corinth is in a perfect location. 
It is such a big deal because of its perfect geography. It, it exists on this little land bridge there that connects two main lands. And any trade that would have went between these two mainlands, and some scholars say anything that went east of there, had to go through Corinth. So whether it was by foot or by ship, it went through Corinth. That made the city incredibly wealthy. Not only did they have a lot of money, they had a lot of success and influence. So ideas spread from Corinth. So he shows up there with this huge potential. He's ready to preach. He's ready to teach. To be honest, it's kind of like, I, I imagine it's like the modern day LA. Like Los Angeles feels like a lot of times that's where it's at. Like things are happening there. A lot of trade is going through there. Ideas are coming from there. They say the middle part of America is always like 10 years behind the coast culturally. So like where LA is, we'll be there in like 10 years, which some is scary. Sometimes maybe it's good. I guess we'll see. But Corinth is like LA. It's the place to be. But it also had a ton of flaws. Sin was rampant in Corinth. Just read the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and you'll see that division, false teaching, idolatry, sex, immorality, it all was just steeped in who they were as a people. And this is the place Paul shows up to. He's ready to preach, continue doing what he's always done, but every time he preaches, there's opposition. And here's no different. Paul is carrying the weight, the heaviness of some hard trips. He's been stoned, beaten, thrown out, chased, persecuted, rejected. And so he steps into Corinth with all of that. He describes his own condition in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. He says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. That's how Paul says he shows up to Corinth. He's, he's at the bottom of the barrel. He is beat down. And the first thing we see when he gets there is he meets this married couple. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla are this couple who already knows Jesus. So Paul isn't sent to them to minister to them, but rather to be supported by them. That he has this desperate need. He, he, he is hurting. And they're the ones that support him. The Priscilla and Aquila pursued Saul or Paul as their one. As they pursue him, they show just this love for Paul in this hard moment, but also for many years to come. And we start to see this pattern in Paul's ministry that continually along the way, God is sending people to encourage, challenge, and love Paul. Paul did not change the world alone. He gets put on Mount Rushmore. He gets, he gets all this hype and all this excitement, but there is constantly people coming alongside him, making Paul who he is. Without their encouragement, we don't know where Paul would be. We talked about Ananias and Barnabas, but we could open up Acts and we can look at John Mark. We could look at Silas. We could look at Timothy. The list goes on and on and on of people who were sent to Paul as the one, where they would love him and care for him. Some of them times they'd preach to him. Some of those times they just encouraged him. Sometimes they challenged him. And here's just another example of that. God providing through his people the church little background on Priscilla and Aquila. They used to live in Italy, but they were forced to leave when the emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So they now find themselves in Corinth for the first time. That they used to live in Italy, but now they're in Corinth and they put down roots, they buy a house, and they start a business. And it's through these two simple things, a house and a business, that they support Paul. I'll read it to you again in verse 2, going through verse 3. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked for them. When Paul arrives in Corinth, what does he need? He needs a place to stay and a job. He needs a roof over his head and some money in his pocket. He needs stability and some security. That is what he needs. And Priscilla and Aquila provide for that need. 
That's what's so amazing about their role here. It's so simple. They had a house. They let him stay there. They had a business. They let him work there. But in this simplicity, there's such deep impact. Because Paul, he's beat down. This is what he needs, and they just provide for that need. And sometimes I think we can like to over-spiritualize things. I don't know if you're like this. I can kind of get like this. I like Ananias' example of the one. Remember how it happened? Saul fell off the horse. He's blinded. He stumbles into Damascus. Ananias has this conversation with the Lord. It's this incredible moment, but there's a lot of fear. He goes and he prays for Saul and the scales fall off his eyes. He literally gets to be a part of a miracle where there was once a blind man, now a guy sees. That's Ananias' story. That's his example of the one. I like that. But what if it's not quite that outright spiritual all the time? Where Priscilla and Aquila, they have this example of the one where it's as simple as they're a couple who has stuff and Paul has needs and they give him the stuff. It is that simple, but that impactful that Priscilla and Aquila used what they had to meet Paul's needs. They didn't go into the synagogue and preach alongside Paul. That's not what Paul needed. They didn't come and they didn't pray for Paul. Like in 2 Corinthians 12, it says Paul has this thorn in his flesh. And scholars will debate what that is, but they don't show up here and start praying for him that God would do a miraculous healing. That's not what Paul needed. He needed a job and a place to stay. That was what he needed. And they provided for that need. So I'll ask you this question. Who's your one? I hope you prayed about that. I hope you had an interaction with them this week that was impactful. But also, what are their needs? Simply, like, what are your person's needs? It's about recognizing that need and meeting that need. That's what Priscilla and Aquila did. Maybe you don't have a house that people can stay with you. Maybe you don't have a business where people can work there. But imagine this. Are you a good student? Some of you are like, nope. Okay, move on to the next one. But if you are a good student, like, I have this incredible example on our leadership team. There's a girl on our team who she's in the nursing program, and like, shout out all the nurses out there. I don't want to be you, but I'm praying for you a lot. Um, she's in this nursing program, and it's hard. Just like a lot of the programs at SDSU, it's really difficult. But there was this person above her in the program a couple years advanced who was also on our leadership team who she came alongside her and just encouraged her. As I said, I've been in your shoes. I know what it's like. Here's how I dealt with it. She was just a good student. That wasn't a spiritual conversation, but between that relationship, something incredible blossomed where they were able to read scripture together, they were able to pray together, they were able to give grace to each other and become more like Jesus. That happened because one was a good student and they were helping someone else who was trying to be a good student. Maybe you have a job uh, and you're good at your job. Again, not everybody in here, but we'll, we'll say maybe. I used to work at the original Pancake House. Sometimes I still do when cash is kind of tight. Some of you know how that rolls. But down in Sioux Falls, I would go and I'd wait tables. And there's a waiter there. She is the best waiter of all time. She's one who will sit down at a room for like 12 people and not write a single thing down. I don't know how she does it, but she, she never gets it wrong. She always, and she makes like way too much money serving pancakes, but she's so good at her job. And you know what she does? She encourages people who are around her. And she says, hey, you should probably actually carry this plate like that, or you should greet this table in this way, or you should order that punch it in a little dip. And these, these little tips that she offers to the people around her that create this goodwill where she's able to speak into their life in a deeper way. We could do that. Do you have a car? I love this example. It's so simple. Will you use your car for the glory of God? In high school, I played soccer. I was the soccer mom. <laughs> like, I kid you not, I drove this little Jeep and as a, a junior, I was sent to go pick up all these freshmen. 
I had to drive around because they couldn't drive yet and they didn't have cars. And so it took me about a half hour every day before and after practice to just pick these guys up. But they'd get in my car and I'd turn on worship music and I'd talk to them and I'd invest in them and I would love them. And I got to do that because I had a car. That simple. Move on. In my, in my senior year, there was a guy who was also on my club soccer team and we practiced through the winter and his car broke down and he didn't have the money to fix it. And so every day, Monday through Friday, I picked him up at his apartment and I drove him across town to soccer practice. Out of everybody on the team, guess who I was closest with? The guy who I spent an extra 30 minutes with every day just because I had a car and he didn't. That could be your investment in the one. Last one, maybe you have a group of friends and you could just steward that group of friends in a way that builds the kingdom of God. I remember when I was a freshman, I came to SDCU and my, my biggest prayer was, Lord, will you just give me Christian friends? That's all I wanted. I was here at Oasis, but I still didn't feel like I'd found community. There was nothing like fall retreat or, or I hadn't yet plugged into a ton of small groups, but I wanted so bad these Christian friends to walk alongside. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and it was finals week of my first semester. And it was Monday night and I had a Tuesday morning test in Spanish. <laughs> no habla espanol. Like I, I do not, I don't think I said that even right. Like I'm so bad at it, but I was needing to study and I was walking down my dorm room. I was walking down the hall and these guys, they came up and they were the dudes that I'd been praying for. Like, God, please let me get into that friend group. And they said, hey, we're going to watch the Harry Potter movies over the next four days. And I was like, bro, it's finals week. The Harry Potter movies are 27 hours. Like it was so long and it was 10 p.m. on Monday night and I had a test in the morning, but I was willing to sacrifice what I felt like I needed to get into that group of friends. And I showed up and we watched movie after movie after movie, and I bombed my Spanish test, and at 1 a.m. every night we'd order Domino's, like we got to be no the Domino's delivery person, but it was in those moments where they had a friend group, and they were watching the movies with or without me, but when I got invited into that, and they were willing to invite someone who was on the outs in, it changed the trajectory of my entire college experience. It was from that point I now had brothers to walk the journey of faith with, but it started with Harry Potter movies and pizza on finals week. It was that simple. I want us to take an inventory of all that God has given you. Relationships, stuff, gifting, talents. How could you use that to care for the one? The person in your life who God is calling you to invest in, how could you care for them in this simple way? With that, we're going to turn back to Acts 18. We're going to change gears a little bit. Because now we're going to look at Paul's ministry model. Earlier, I asked the question, what makes Nike, Nike? When we read the text again, we're going to see what makes Paul, Paul. This Paul guy will change the world. Some of you are like thinking I'm exaggerating. I am, I'm not. Two billion people today, two billion, proclaim to be Christians. I don't know if they all are, but that's how they would answer the question. Two billion. At that time, that was not the case. Multiple continents were reached with the gospel because of Paul. 13 of the books in our New Testament are because of Paul. At least 14 churches in that ancient, ancient day planted because of Paul. Thousands of people would come to know Jesus because of Paul. Thousands more would be trained up because of Paul. How did he do this? How did he change the whole world? It is incredible. And I want to tell you, part of Paul's success is his ability to balance both evangelism and discipleship. Part of Paul's success is his ability to balance both evangelism and discipleship. That's his secret sauce. 
right? That is what makes him so successful. Throughout his ministry, he will do both of these incredibly well. That he will go and he will preach the good news. He will tell people about Jesus. But he will couple it with this idea of training people up so that they look like Christ. He's famous for being an evangelist, but his success doesn't last if he's not a disciple. That he will go and he will plant all of these churches. But if he doesn't write the letters back to those churches telling them how to follow Jesus, they wouldn't have made it. He can preach all he wants about this resurrected God-man. He can do it day after day and week after week, and people will come to know Jesus. But if he doesn't train them in what it looks like to love Jesus, it'll fizzle. As quickly as people will come to Christ, they'll leave because they don't know how to walk with Christ. I want to give you two definitions. The first one is for evangelism. Evangelism is telling people about the gospel who don't yet fully believe it or know it. Evangelism is simply telling people about the gospel. If you've never heard the gospel, I'm going to lay it out for you. That Jesus was the perfect son of God. And he lived that perfect life. And he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he did it for our sins. Not some abstract reality of sin. No, no, no. Our sins. Think of what you did today and yesterday, what you'll do tomorrow. The pitfalls in your life where you are not pleasing God. He did it for that. And when he rose from the grave victorious, he paid the penalty for that sin. That is the gospel. Paul would travel around the ancient world telling people that. And people would come to know Jesus. Discipleship is being spiritually formed and teaching others to be spiritually formed into the image of Jesus. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But there is a balance here. We need to tell people about Jesus and train them to love like Jesus. Now, there's not always a match in how these two work, perfect with priorities. They're going to put a picture up there of a teeter-totter. These are like death instruments. Anybody remember this thing? This and the merry-go-round, I don't know how we're still alive. But the teeter-totter is a perfect example of this. That the way it works as a playground equipment is it's constantly up and down. There's this balance. That sometimes we like to think of this perfect reality where the two people will be the same weight and they'll push the same amount off the ground and they'll perfectly stay level. But that's not how it works on the teeter-totter. And that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. That both evangelism and discipleship are essential. But there is this constant flow of at one time you might focus on this, you might be heavy into telling people about Jesus. But as people come to know Jesus, you start to disciple them. And the teeter-totter switches. Now, at any point, did you not value evangelism? No. But at that season, you had to value and prioritize discipleship. And that's how the kingdom of God works. It's how it worked for Paul. I'll read it to you, starting in Acts 18, verse 5. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. That's evangelism. But when they opposed Paul and they became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and he said to them, your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, which I love the name Crispus. I think that's dope. And his entire household believed, I don't know if my wife will let me name a kid Crispus. It's kind of aggressive, but maybe. And his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who had heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one's going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. There it is, discipleship. Essentially, Paul's doing the same old thing he's always done, preaching in the synagogues, teaching people when Silas and Timothy show up. 
And when they show up, he devotes himself exclusively to preaching. He's in the synagogue every day. Previously, he had to work as a tent maker. He had to make his keep. But Silas and Timothy brought this gift from the Macedonian church where Paul no longer has to work Monday through Friday. No, instead he gets to show up every single day at the synagogue and just preach and preach and preach. And when he preaches like that every day, just faithfully bringing the word, people come to know Jesus. Like we see that. It tells us that the synagogue leader and his whole house believed. Many Corinthians who also heard believed. That as Paul, he saw people to know... Paul saw people come to know Jesus through the faithful telling of the gospel. That's true. But now, he has this group of Christians. This group of brand new believers. There's a church blossoming in Corinth. And it didn't just magically appear. He didn't throw a Christian post on his story. He didn't wear a cross necklace and just hope that did the trick. He didn't get a Bible tattoo and just maybe that will check the box. No. Paul told people about Jesus and the gospel, and they came to faith. Paul evangelized. From there, Paul will stay in Corinth for about a year and a half, which is really radical for him. He, he liked to move around. He was constantly on the move as he was persecuted, but at this time, he stays there for a year and a half, and as he does, his priorities shift. The focus of why he's there shifts. He's still going to do evangelism. When God speaks to him in the vision, he says, I have more people in this city. That means there are more people who are yet to come to believe, so he's still going to preach the gospel, but something else becomes more prominent for a new season. He has this new group of believers, this new church. They know Jesus, but they don't know how to live like Jesus. So instead of exclusively preaching about Jesus, Paul is now teaching them the word. And to us, those might sound really similar, preaching and teaching, but in the original Greek language, they're worlds apart. That to to preach is this word kerasa. It's this word that means to, to publicly proclaim or to publish. When it's used throughout the New Testament, it's constantly talking about the public proclamation of the gospel. Keruso. Preaching is evangelism. It's telling people about the gospel who don't yet fully believe it or know it. Whereas to teach, that word in the original Greek is didasko. And didasko has a completely different meaning than keruso, the word we were just looking at. Didasco means to instruct, to instill doctrine. Didasco is discipleship. It's to come alongside people who already are following Jesus and teach them how to be like Jesus. There's such a beauty in that. Paul was exclusively preaching. People come to know the Lord. Now he's going to teach them what it looks like to love Jesus. As he does this, he models what Jesus did. Matthew 11.1. 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... He went on from there to preach, or to teach, Didasco, and to preach, Keruso, in the towns of Galilee. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to preach. He's going to tell people about who he is in the kingdom of God that's coming. But he's also, he's going to teach. He's going to train them what it looks like to live in this new kingdom. Jesus is going for both evangelism and discipleship. Throughout this year, and even tonight, we've hit evangelism pretty hard, so I'm not going to focus the rest of my time there. That simply as people of God, we are to go, go make disciples, go tell people about Jesus, tell them about the gospel, that Jesus has died for their sins, tell people that. But now we're going to focus in on discipleship. And discipleship can be really confusing. The first reason is discipleship is something you experience, but it's also something you help others experience. That you are constantly being discipled, or at least you should be. 
That there is never a state in your life where you have reached it and you are done becoming like Christ. It is this continual, constant process of learning what it looks like to love and walk with Jesus. But at the same time as you do that, you're discipling others. And you're teaching them what it looks like to love and to care for Jesus. The second reason it becomes confusing is some Christians like their set way of doing discipleship. That they'll say discipleship happens one-on-one. That's how it happens. That's, that's it. Or discipleship happens through Bible reading. Or discipleship happens in coffee shops. Or discipleship happens X, Y, and Z. They fill in the blank and they say, this is how discipleship happens. But at Oasis, we affirm a more holistic approach. They're going to put this up. And I'm going to talk through this just for a second. Because yes, discipleship happens one-on-one. We have literally spent two weeks now talking about the one that you should have someone you meet with and encourage and challenge and vice versa. That absolutely should happen. And it can happen in coffee shops and dorm rooms, at workplaces. It doesn't matter, but you should have that. But discipleship also happens right now. Right here on Sunday nights. That the word of God is being preached, taught right here, right now. That if we were to look back over our, our last series, parables, and each and every week of that, We were teaching each other. I was learning what it looks like to follow Jesus. Week one, we talked about what it meant to sow seeds, right? But we didn't just talk about it. We taught. Why do some people not believe? And there was four soils. That's discipleship. The next week we showed up and we talked about the prodigal son. And as we talk about the prodigal son, there's a heavy preaching moment there that there were so many people in this room who did not know Jesus and we wanted everyone to hear the gospel. And so we preached that night. But there was also teaching because most of us here tonight still probably have a broken view of who the father is. That's teaching. Then we showed up the next week and Ben brought this incredible message about priorities. That was exclusively teaching us how do we follow Jesus? What does it look like to live with him? Then the final week we showed up and we talked about the Good Samaritan. And again, there's this preaching moment where we say Jesus is the Good Samaritan. But there's a lot of teaching and say how how Christians do we love sacrificially? That's what Jesus did. How do we do that? Each and every week when we open the word of God, including tonight, discipleship is an opportunity for you. But it's not just through the word of God, it's also through the songs we sing. Do you recognize the musical worship that we do as part of your discipleship? That the songs you sing, the words that are on the screen, the way way that you sing, the way you interact in this space is discipleship. It's training you how to look like Jesus. Go beyond there, into the foyer, pre or post service. Do you realize that's discipleship? When you interact with people, the way you speak to them, the way you listen to them, whether you love them, do you realize that's discipleship? That's training you how it looks, how to love like Jesus. Even beyond that, when we come into this place, there is a whole group of people that are called the leadership team and the ministry team. You heard Mark talk about it. That is discipleship for them. Whether they hold the door or make coffee or pass out a card or stand up here on our post-service team, whatever it is, every single time they get to serve using their time and their talents is discipleship because that's what Jesus would want them to do. But hear this. Everything on a Sunday night can be discipleship, but it will only be if you let it be. You can show up every single Sunday night and check the box, listen to the message. You could even take notes. But if you don't apply it, is it discipleship? You can show up and you can stand in the row and you can watch the screen and you can sing the songs and you can join with that. But if it's just words on a screen and your heart's not in it, is it discipleship? You can run in the doors and run out the doors. You can come and you can stand out there and you can talk to people, but you're not actually loving and engaging and checking in. Is it discipleship? Another way we do discipleship here at Oasis is through small groups. The small groups are an amazing tool for discipleship. 
that every single one of you should be in a small group. The reason for that is is because we will study the word of God together. And as we study the word of God, we learn how do we, how do we apply it to our lives. That's discipleship. Not only you get to live and experience Christian community together, but discipleship only happens in small groups if you sign up, show up, and invest in them. People will come and say, hey, I didn't get much out of small group. And I say, what did you bring to the table? What was your heart like going in there? Were you going as a consumer just trying to take from the group? Or did you come to contribute and to give? The Son of Man came to serve. We want to be like Jesus. We want to serve. Discipleship only happens if you invest. I'm in a group on Tuesday night. Shout out my Tuesday night guys. I see a couple of... I'm there because I want to look more like Jesus. The first week I walked in, they're like, oh, are you checking in? You know, like in high school where the teacher would stand in the back of the class. They're like, oh, are you just coming to check on our small group leaders? I was like, nope, I am here for the long haul. And some dudes probably were super scared and they have not come back. But that's okay. Because <laughs> I am there for discipleship, not as a pastor. Finally, you have a private relationship with Jesus. Or you should. Do you spend time with God privately, individually? This time with God is the glue that holds all the other aspects of discipleship together. That when you sit and when you read his word and you pray and you reflect and you journal and you fast and you practice silence and solitude, all of the spiritual disciplines, that is a moment that teaches you what it looks like to love and look like Jesus. And if you do that, I promise you on Sunday nights and in small groups and in, and in every other arena of your life, you'll see and experience the presence of God in ways you won't if you won't do this. All of this teaches us what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'll invite the team up. Paul had this beautiful balance of evangelism and discipleship. It's what made his ministry so effective. He told people about Jesus, but then he also taught them and trained them to look like Jesus. It was this balance that made what he did so amazing. And I think we want to build the kingdom, not just me. I think we want to build the kingdom here. And if we want to do that, we got to be like Paul. we got to be people who are about both of these. Telling people about Jesus, training them to be like Jesus. Otherwise, we looked at Priscilla and Aquila. This amazing couple who saw Paul as their one, and they simply brought what they had to the table. Through their whole life, you could follow them, and every single place they go, they just bring what they have to the table. This finishes our series, From Damascus to the World. And what I love about that title is because Paul was met by God on his way to Damascus. Everything changed for him there. Everything. But as he's met by God in Damascus, he's sent to the world. And the whole world will be changed according to God's will through Paul. And over these last two weeks in this place at Oasis, I believe God wants to meet us here. And as he meets us here, he wants to change us here. And as he changes us here, he wants to send us out into a world to bring about his change. If I could change the title, it's from Brookings to the world, it's from Oasis to the world, it's from SDSU to the world, that you are all here. We are here, specifically called, specially gifted for this time to build God's kingdom. And I pray that we would. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for Acts 18. I pray that you would help us to be people who look like Priscilla and Aquila. That God, you have gifted each and every one of us with unique things. 
Not only that, you've gifted us with unique influence, and I pray that we would steward that influence and steward what we have as, as things or time or talents, God, and we would just invest in your kingdom, and we would bring what we have to the table, and we would offer it as a sacrifice to you. Would you breathe on that? Would you bless that, God? Not only that, would you help us to be people who are about evangelism and discipleship? That as we leave this week, God, maybe that means we've been focused too much on discipleship in ourselves and we've got to get out there and we've got to be about evangelism. And so I pray that you'd give us boldness and courage to tell someone about the gospel this week. But not only that, God, will you give us boldness and courage to step into discipleship where we will become like you? And would you help us bring all that we have to the table again, but in a different way? And would you bless it, God? Thank you for tonight. Thank you for the gathering of your people around your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.